We'll be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first few verses. We're spending a, a few weeks looking at what the Bible says about the church, and we're framing that within the four sides of the Lockwood Covenant. Of course, there's a great deal more to say about the church of Jesus Christ than is said in the covenant. But you can think of those four parts of the covenant as a window frame. And we can look through that window to see believers blessing and supporting their church family. Can't see everything about the church, but we can see that. During the first couple of weeks in this series, we looked at the covenant promise to regularly exalt God in worship. And then we looked at the promise last two weeks to edify or to build up one another to live distinctively Christian lives. Today we want to look at the third of the covenant promises to evangelize our world by sharing God's love and forgiveness with those outside Christ. In other words, the promise to evangelize. Of the four promises in the church covenant, this is the one that scares people. We've come to think of an evangelist as a salesperson, as a fast-talking, arm-twisting, vacuum-selling, Willie Loman-type salesman. So a good evangelist gets lots of people to sign on the dotted line. He's bold, he's relentless. He can turn any conversation into an evangelistic opportunity. You think it was hot last week? You ain't seen nothing yet, buddy, unless you receive Jesus as your Savior. Some people resonate to that. I mean, that's their nature. They are salesmen. They think, I could do that. I love the challenge. But most of us think, I could never do that. And then, I will never do that. When we come to the promise to evangelize our our world and our covenant, we get nervous. We don't want to make promises that we can't keep, or worse, that we don't intend to keep. And yet, we know we ought to evangelize. Or at least that's what good Christians do. If I was a good Christian, I would do that. And so we fudge, we hedge, we think, I guess I don't really have to say anything, right? I mean, I can evangelize by my lifestyle. St. Francis said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And I hope it won't be necessary. Some of us are like the guy who heard a stirring sermon on witnessing on Sunday. And the next day before going to work, he prays, oh God, if you want me to tell somebody about Jesus today, you're going to have to give me a sign. And so he gets on his bus, as he does every single morning, the first person on the bus to ride to work. The very next stop, a single passenger gets on, just one guy, and he walks right down the bus and he sits right next to him, even though the entire bus is empty. And the guy says, hey, do you know anything about Jesus? So the Christian fires off a quick prayer. God, is this a sign? If it is, let the next person who comes in be wearing a San Diego Padres cap, and then I'll know. Why is it that we find it so intimidating? I think it's because we don't understand. I think we've imposed a definition on evangelism, or had a definition of evangelism imposed on us, that is not biblical. And because of that, we hesitate. We sense there's something wrong here. For one thing, the practice of evangelism has, weirdly enough, been separated from the gospel, something the apostles would have deemed inconceivable. The, the, 
gospel and evangelism are so closely connected that the word evangel, evangelism, is just how the Greek word euangelion slid into English. But somehow we've come to think of the gospel as a product to be sold, when in reality it is good news to be told. There's a big difference between telling and selling. And related to that is the mistaken idea that the gospel describes what a person should do when in reality the gospel describes what God already has done. Another problem is this. We've mistakenly thought of evangelism, of giving the gospel, sharing the gospel, as a solo performance rather than as a team effort. And really, if that guy's eternal destiny depends entirely on me, I'm going to be so intimidated that I won't be able to say anything to him. And finally, without realizing it, we've replaced the good news of God and of Jesus and of the kingdom and of salvation, which are all different ways of expressing the same good news with the good news of getting into heaven after we die. In other words, we've trimmed the good news about God and Jesus down to the point that it's really just good news about me, which I think is the way we Americans like it. But it's not the gospel. I want to help us make and keep the covenant promise to evangelize our world. And I want to help us by getting rid of some of the misunderstandings on which our misgivings about evangelism are based. So first of all, understand that evangelizing or gospeling is not presenting a sales pitch. We are not tasked with coercing people into the faith, getting them to sign on the dotted line. The gospel is not a product to be sold. It is news to be told. See, I'm a terrible salesperson. I know some of you are good at it, but I'm not. When my boys were young, I looked for probably two years to find a boat to buy. Because I thought, if I have a boat, I'm going to be able to take them out fishing. It's going to be a great time with my kids. And finally, I found a boat, $1,275 used boat. Well, I went and checked it out, went for a ride on the boat, and went back to the guy's house. And when I got back, I thought, okay, it's not what I really want, but I've been waiting two years. I'm going to buy this boat. But I had forgotten the amount the guy asked for. In my mind, it was $1,200, not $1,275, so I wrote him out a check. And he looks at my check, and then he calls his wife from the other room, and he says, Honey, the preacher's trying to cheat us out of $75. (laughs) (laughs) Any rate, I bought the boat. Three years later, I sold the boat, because I only went fishing three times in three years. So I sold the boat, and I I thought, how much can I get out of this? I put a price for $1,100 on it. Somebody called the day the ad came out in the shopper's guide. And they wanted to see it, and they wanted it so badly. I think they were writing the check before they got out of the car. They hadn't even seen the boat. But I'm such a terrible salesman. I'm ticking off a list, everything that's wrong with the boat. Now, wait a minute. This is wrong, and this is wrong. By the time we got done, I thought I should be paying them to take the boat off of my property. I am not a salesman. Probably you aren't either. Maybe 5, 10% of us are salesmen. You don't have to be a salesperson to evangelize. Because Christ is not a commodity to be sold. We aren't selling people the faith. We're telling people about the faithful God and what he's done 
through his son, Jesus. When Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians of the gospel he preached, and literally, it's the gospel I gospeled unto you. There is not a hint anywhere that the gospel was in any sense a sales pitch. The word gospel itself is Old English, and it means good news. Gospel is just good news. The Greek word euangelion is good announcement. When we evangelize people, when we gospel them, we are announcing that something good has happened. We're not telling them about something good that they should do. Of course, the gospel has implications. But don't confuse the implications of the good news with the good news itself. As soon as we do that, we stop being gospel people and we become salespeople. And most of us don't want to be salespeople. You know, people back out of sales all the time. That's why companies like Amazon and Walmart are constantly monitoring the percentage of canceled orders they receive. You know, almost 7 out of 10 online shopping carts are abandoned with things in them. People pick out something that they have every intention of buying, and then they don't follow through. If you turn the good news into a good sales pitch, people are going to back out. When you're gone, they're going to back out. But they can't back out of good news. An evangelist is a good news person. I had a friend who was a salesman. He's a great guy. Uh, when I went to my previous church, he, he was the first person in the community who came to meet me. Took me out for coffee. Blessed me in a, a hundred ways. He was also a salesman. He was a good salesman. And I think because of that, and because of this kind of definition that's been imposed on the gospel, he saw the gospel as yet another, though most important, product to sell. I remember him telling me to phrase questions so that the person I was talking to could say no, because in a sales situation, no is easier for a person to say than yes. So he wanted me to, to ask people, hey, would you mind if I take just a couple minutes of your time? No? Oh, great. Or, is there anything keeping you from trusting Jesus as your Savior right now? No? That's not evangelizing. It's persuading. Or, and I hesitate to say it because I have such respect for my dear friend, it's manipulating. There's no place for manipulation in our witness. There is a place for persuasion, however. Apostle Paul was a great persuader. But let's not mistake that for evangelism, which is telling people the good news that God has done something. And he's done it through Jesus. And it's going to change the world. In fact, it already has. Consider 1 Corinthians 15 again. Paul says he wants to remind the Corinthians of the gospel he taught that they received. And then he writes, this is verse 3. We're going to put it on the screen. You can follow along. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, does that sound like a sales pitch to you? Here's Paul. This is the gospel. It doesn't sound like a sales pitch at all. It sounds like an announcement about something that's happened. It doesn't sound like good advice. 
It sounds like good news. And yet people regularly come to this text as if it were good advice. Advice about escaping hell and getting into heaven. But when you come to this text with that idea, you know what happens? You have no idea what to do with verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8 are clearly part of what Paul considered the gospel. In fact, verse 5 is still the same sentence that begins in verse 3. But it's obvious that these verses are not advice. They're not some kind of sales pitch. Let me give you a sound principle of interpretation. For this passage, for any passage. When some of the verses in a text don't seem to fit other verses inside the same text, it's a pretty good sign that we're taking the text out of context. And that happens right here. And when we do that, we end up treating this passage as though it's good advice. We end up leaving out more than half of Paul's description of the gospel. In fact, sometimes people even gloss over the resurrection. And they focus on just one line in verse 3 as though that were the whole gospel. Christ died for our sins. That Christ died for our sins is unexpected and it's gloriously true. But if you take that line out of its context, you're certainly going to misapply it. You're going to turn this passage into something it isn't, into advice, into a sales pitch. Now, we do something else with this passage that betrays a misunderstanding. And you can hear it when people read it, when they share it. We treat the word Christ as though it were a name. Christ died for our sins. As if Christ is Jesus' surname. Jesus is his first name. Christ is his last name. But Christ is not a name. It's never been a name. It's not a name now. It's a title. And a Jewish title at that. Christ is the Greek translation of the word Hamashiach, Messiah, which refers to the anointed one. That is the king. When Paul says that Christ died for our sins, he is saying something remarkable. He's tying these Corinthians and us into thousands of years of Jewish history, into God's promises and Israel's hopes He's saying that God has acted to fulfill his promises to Mother Eve and Father Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. He's making good on his promises through poet and prophet to send a champion, a savior, a Messiah. He's saying that Messiah came to keep God's promises, as every Jew knew he would, to make right what went wrong, to save his people and his world but that he did so by dying. One of the things that surprised me most about the Apostle Paul's teaching, the apostle to the Gentiles, he refers to himself as, is how constantly he frames the good news in a Jewish setting. Again and again, he tells Gentiles that the Jewish Messiah died to make things right, that God raised him from the dead, and that he's now Lord of all, of Jews and Gentiles. The one true God has acted to rescue his creation and keep his covenant promises, and he's done through, so through Messiah Jesus. That's news. Now, if you're the Roman Empire, you might, or Roman Emperor, you might not consider that good news. 
You might not think that Jesus is Lord is good news to you. And if you're Jewish, the news that your Messiah, Jesus, was executed might seem preposterous to you. And if you're a Jewish or a Gentile merchant in Ephesus selling amulets and images of the goddess Artemis, you might even get angry over the news that there's one true God and that the resurrection declares him with power to be Jesus, God's son. But whether Jew or Gentile, whether Caesar or some Turkish merchant, the message would be news to you. It would not be advice. That brings me to the next misunderstanding that might hinder us from making the covenant promise to evangelize. And that is the idea that evangelism, the sharing of the good news, is a solo performance. It is not. It is a team effort. And guess who's on the team? Well, yes, the rest of the church is. We're going to get that in a moment. But even more importantly, God is on the team. When we evangelize, when we simply tell the good news, God steps onto the playing field. And then things happen. Paul discovered this for himself. When he announced the good news, when he simply shared the gospel, God used it to change people's lives. Paul didn't see it as his job to change people's lives. It wasn't his job to get, save people. His job was to tell what had happened, what God had done and was going to do through Jesus Christ. It's God's job to do the rest. Paul, and Paul had seen God do that time after time and place after place. He knew God was at work, for example, when he announced the good news to the Thessalonians. And how did he know it? It's because the gospel came not simply with words, but with power with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. When he announced the gospel, God came on the scene. When he told the Corinthians the news about what God had done through Jesus, he very intentionally refused to use any kind of strong arm, sales pitch, eloquent rhetoric. He didn't use any of that. And even so, there was a clear demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. So Paul could say to them, look, this is obviously not me, it's God. When Paul told people how the one true God sent his son to make things right, to offer forgiveness, to reconcile humanity to himself. When he told them how the Messiah died a shameful death on a cross and how God raised him from the dead. When he talked about the resurrection, people were strangely moved. On hearing that news, something welled up inside them. They wanted to join God's side. They wanted to be the people of Messiah Jesus And they arranged their lives to do so. Because he'd seen this happen again and again, he knew he wasn't in this alone. He knew that whenever he told people the good news, God would be at work. He thought of evangelism as a cooperative effort with God's spirit, which is why he told the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He knew the gospel... Good news, not good advice, not a good sales pitch, but good news, it comes equipped with its own power. I, I think this microphone, some of the microphones in churches, some of the microphones musicians use are designed to run on what's called phantom power. A phantom power mic has its own uh, electronic circuitry and it gets its juice through the cables that run to the mic. Well, the gospel is, in a sense, phantom-powered, God-powered, really. Like the phantom mic, the good news about Jesus 
comes endued with its own power. We don't have to generate it. It comes from God. We're not doing this on our own. It's not all up to us. So get rid of the idea that evangelism is all up to me. That doesn't leave room for God, nor does it leave room for the church, and that's a terrible mistake. Have you heard of SETI? SETI is uh, the Search for Extraterrestrial Life that's headquartered out at UC Berkeley. A few years ago, they've been doing this for probably for 20 years, um, searching the skies for data and then crunching that data to look to see if they can find any sign of intelligent life somewhere else in the universe. Well, about, I don't know, five, ten years ago, they came up with the idea because there's so much data, uh, incredibly so much data that they can't crunch it all, even with their supercomputers. So they came up with the idea and introduced SETI Home. SETI Home asked for volunteers to offer their home computers for use, usually overnight time, um, for the SETI project. So they have linked 3 million home computers of volunteers to process all of this data more than the largest computers could ever process. They call it distributed computing. Well, the gospel is best presented with distributed evangelism. The entire church becomes a witness to the reality of Christ. And you know what? If the church is doing what we've been talking about over the past few weeks, joyfully worshiping and lovingly building each other up, the power of telling the good news is magnified enormously. I, when I lived in another city, I, I was downtown one day on a Sunday with my family, and a woman approached me on the street and gave me a gospel tract. There's hardly anybody in town, and she saw us, and she came over, and she gave me this tract. And I took it from her, and I said, oh, what's this about? And I didn't tell her I was a pastor. What's this about? So I wanted to hear her give me the gospel. And she told me something about, well, it's about getting right with God and going to heaven. And then I asked her, well, okay, what church do you belong to? Her response was telling. She didn't belong to any church. None of the churches had it right. I can't tell you how flat that woman's witness left me. She was a total lone ranger. Disconnected from a major source of gospel power, the church. The church that is joyfully worshiping and lovingly building each other up. That's the God-designed backdrop for the effective communication of the gospel. It was against the backdrop of a glad and sincere church in Acts chapter 4, the church that was worshiping together and loving each other, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's how it works. Her approach to sharing the gospel was based, I think, on on one more distorted notion of evangelism I want to share with you. It's a misunderstanding that evangelism is primarily about getting people into heaven. That's what the woman on the street thought. I'm going to give this guy a push through the heavenly gates, whether he wants it or not, and then I'm going to lock on to some other target on the street and go get him. Did you know that there is not a single passage in the Bible in which the word gospel appears that speaks about going to heaven. Do 
Doesn't that seem odd? If the gospel is all about getting people into heaven? See, we've abandoned the biblical understanding of the gospel as news for a cultural, religious understanding of the gospel as advice. We've transitioned from thinking of the gospel as something that God has done, sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross and to be resurrected from the grave, to something we ought to do, accept Jesus into our hearts. And you know what happens when we think like that? It's very subtle. Our confidence is relocated from God's action to our action. From God's faithfulness to our faith. And instead of trusting God, we trust our faith. And when that happens, the good news ceases to be good news. Now let me wrap this up. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds his friends how he gospeled them. How he gospeled the gospel to them and how they received it and on it took their stand. The power that was at work was not his. It was not in his persuasive words. He didn't use them. It wasn't in the Corinthians' deep spiritual insight. It was in the gospel itself. It was God-powered. The Christians there took their stand on what God had done through Jesus, not on what they had done with Jesus. See the difference? So let me draw two conclusions from that. First, any of us can share the news of the one true God and what he has done in Christ's death and resurrection. That's evangelism. And many of us can go on to tell people the difference that news has made in our life. That's witness. Any of us can do it because the power doesn't reside in us. It resides in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. So, first conclusion, try telling the gospel. Tell it simply to your children and your grandchildren. Tell it to your barber. Tell it to your neighbor. Tell it to your friend. Don't give them advice. Give them the gospel. And don't worry about not knowing enough. That's what people say. I'm afraid people are going to ask me questions. I don't. Don't worry about it. The power's not in you. You know enough for the gospel to do its work. Tell it and see what God does. Secondly, if you have not received the good news and taken your stand on it, let me tell you, there's one true God. He has not forgotten the world and he has not forgotten you. He sent his own son, the seed of Abraham, the descendant of David, to earth to make things right. Some people didn't want that. And they executed him on a cross. But God knew all along that was going to happen and he used it in his plan. In fact, it was right at the heart of his plan. And then he raised Jesus from the dead. That was also part of his plan. And made him Lord of all. And he's promised to come back one day and finish what he started. That's the news. And here's the upshot. You can be on God's side. He will take you in, forgive your sins, be your God, and you his child. The news I shared with you is powerful, and you can tap into it. If right now you feel something at work in your mind and heart, know that that's God working through the good news. Know that it's time to come over to him. Acknowledge his son, Jesus Christ, as the world's rightful Lord and your rightful leader. 
It's time to change your thinking and believe the good news. Okay, let's pray. Oh God, we receive this and we take our stand on it. That Christ died for our sins and was buried and was on the third day resurrected and then was seen by Peter and by 500 and by the other apostles and by James and last of all by Paul and by the miracle of grace by some of us. And we thank you for the good news and what it means about you and about us. Use the good news in our lives. Make us good news people. I ask this in Jesus' name.